Okay, good morning everyone. Feel free to take some coffee. It's great to see everyone again. Um, if you've not signed up for the Amuna WhatsApp group, we've been posting a daily Amuna reminder and for the most part been successful in moderating it to only have one post a day. So uh, if you're not signed up yet, please uh, feel free to join. You can send me an email and we'll get you in the group. And I want to thank Esti Lupin for her help as the uh, administrator. I don't know what her official uh, title is of, uh, of running that group. The past yeah, and thank you for hosting the last couple of weeks. Okay, today we're going to uh, continue our study, our daily or weekly dose of Emuna. Just uh, again, these are not necessarily all tremendously novel ideas, but they are there to keep us mindful. Emuna is a function of mindfulness, like good eating and healthy living and positive relationships and every other aspect of life is not a function of having some major breakthrough with a novel idea, but is more a function of mindfulness. So to emuna, with all of its um, positive byproducts of happiness and relief and comfort and serenity, all of that comes about when one is mindful of emuna. But what I want to do today and study with you is a chapter from Shmira Salashan. And you might think, what in the world does Shmira Salashan have to do with emuna? Shmira Salashan is the Sefer of the Chafetz Chaim, um, the great Rishon uh, Meir Kagan of Radin, the great Chafetz Chaim, by the way, who for a long time was certainly an iconic figure in the Jewish people, um, but was a somewhat mythical figure in the sense that we didn't necessarily relate to who he was. But recently it was discovered in the archives, video archives of uh, some Jewish historical library, video footage of the Chafetz Chaim. And you can watch online, at, uh, there was a Knesset, there was a gathering of rabbis where the Chafetz Chaim is walking surrounded by some disciples, and you actually can bring to life the Chavetz Chaim. It's an absolutely incredible thing. So the Chavetz Chaim wrote a Sefer Shmir Salashon. Shmir Salashon is guarding one's tongue. Based on the Pasuk we say in Pesukah de Zimr this morning, in the Tzor Lashon Chameira, Shmir Salashon, to guard one's tongue. What do you have to guard your tongue from? Not from peanut allergies, and not from, maybe you do, but not from, uh, you know, a chocolate cake. It's guarding a tongue not from what comes in your mouth, but what comes out of your mouth. The whole uh, theme of Shmir Salashon is... Being mindful and being careful and being vigilant in not speaking negative, toxic language, which is damaging, which is hurtful, not only to others, but ultimately, and the Chavetz Chaim elaborates on this, when we gossip, when we slander, when we criticize or marginalize or condemn other people, the, uh, the one who is hurt the most is ourselves. We've lost our dignity. We've lost our integrity when we use that gift of that power of speech in that way. So you'll say, well, power of speech... Shmir Salashon, being careful how you talk, what does that do with Emunah? It's like two separate Shmuzin. Those are two separate Shiurim. Those are two separate WhatsApp groups. We don't have a Shmir Salashon WhatsApp group. That's what I said too. It's like a great place to share the greatest Lashon Hara. We'll create a WhatsApp group. I remember when I was growing up, there was an older guy in my shul. He said to me, he said, um, I don't repeat Lashon Hara, so listen carefully the first time. <laughs> so we got a WhatsApp group. But it, the Shmir Salashan WhatsApp group. So you think it's two separate WhatsApp groups. There's one for Amuna, work on feeling Hashem in your life, realizing Hashem is in control, and another to work on not gossiping, not slandering, not being negative. And we'll see in this piece that the Chavetz Chaim brilliantly, brilliantly weaves the two together and says the Rabbah Hatalia, they truly depend on, on one another. Remind me at the end, because tonight's Lagba Omer, to share an Amuna thought about Lagba Omer. Just remind me in case I forget. But let's go first through this Shmir Salashan. Okay? He says the following. Da, no. That refraining or abstaining or being careful when it comes to negative language includes within it being careful about all types of language. Which is negative language 
or which is language which aggravates, aggrieves your friend. Kigom lashon hara, rechilas umachlokas uklalos v'halbanas panim v'onaz dvarim. Those sound like they're all synonyms, but they're all separate descriptions of the damage that we can inflict with our words. Right? There's damage you can inflict with your words where you make something up that's not true about someone. There's damage you can inflict with words where even if something is 1,000% true, but you repeated it and it didn't need to be repeated. There's the damage of machlokas, when there's conflict, when it's contentious, when it didn't have to be, bless you, and it could have been resolved. Klalos, there's cursing someone out, wishing them poorly, hoping for a negative result. Halbanas panem, embarrassing someone. We're not careful with what we say and we humiliate and we embarrass them intentionally, unintentionally. Onaz dvarim. Onaz dvarim means that you're not allowed to cause pain to somebody with words. So this week's Parsha, actually. Parsha's Bahar. We have ona'a in financial business. If I'm selling you something, I can't sell it to you for more than its value. There's a fair market value of the item I'm selling you. If I overprice, I violated ona'a. I've caused you pain financially. And the Gemara there elaborates, is it a sixth over? Is it more than a sixth? Is it exactly a sixth? And there's different rules depending how much the price is inflated. And defining how price is inflated and fair market for everything is not a simple calculation either. But there's ona when it comes to finances and there's ona when it comes to words. For example, you're not supposed to remind a convert or balchuva or someone you knew back when about who they were or what they did before they've made a significant change in their life. Why not? What you're saying is true. It's part of their life. Why are they embarrassed? The answer is, it's ona. You're causing someone pain with your words. If you're insensitive to somebody who has suffered something, so if you write something or say something which can make a particular demographic victims of abuse, victims of rape, victims of this, uh, converts, if you say things that are insensitive, divorcees, people with infertility, that's onaz dvarim. Not even necessarily intentional. A person could be sitting around a Shabbos table and they're talking all about their children. And there's a couple there with no children. They're talking all about their happy marriage. And there's somebody there who's not married or doesn't have a happy marriage. They're talking all about the great wealth and how they're killing it in business and what they can buy and the vacations they take it. There's somebody there who doesn't know where tomorrow's food is coming. That's on Naz Dvarim. So the Chavetz Chaim begins by saying that our power of words, on the one hand, can be so constructive, it can create, it can build, it can achieve. On the other hand, it can be so destructive. It can really hurt, it can really cause pain, it can really inflict a tremendous, tremendous damage. By the way, in a certain sense, our generation appreciates this more than any other because... You know, the Chavetz Chaim has the famous metaphor of the pillow, right? Where the person who spoke Lashonar came and asked, how can I do tshuva? He took a pillow filled with feathers and popped a hole and hit the pillow and the feathers started going everywhere. And he said, go collect all the feathers. The guy said, it's impossible. He said, well, it's the same thing with your Lashonara. You put it out there and now it's spread. You can't control it. So if that was true in the little town of Raden, Poland in the 1800s, early 1900s, Kalva Homer, all the more it's true today. So you put something online, right? You put it email, texting, or you put it online. You think you deleted that post? It's part of the digital footprint forever, forever. So we have to be all the more vigilant, all the more careful in our power of speech and language, whether with words or whether with, uh, with a keyboard. And a person who wants to improve, who wants to merit, Achieving the level of being careful that they speak, Yizchazek Ma'ur B'midas Habitachon. What? Totally counterintuitive. If you want to be more vigilant and careful in how you speak, the answer is work on your Bitachon. Work on your Bitachon. That's two WhatsApp groups. What do you mean work on your Bitachon? What does one thing have to do with the other? 
im echad yiga be'inyanov. V'lo yav v'lo saper b'gnuso v'lo ravizo v'lo kalo l'ulahal b'mpano v'lo aknito. V'yivtach b'ashem. What causes, what's the underlying cause of a lot of damage with words? The underlying cause of why we speak that gossip, that Lashon Hara, why we embarrass that person, why we do those things, often the underlying cause is that we're harboring ill will, resentment, pain, judgment of that other person. You know, they're, they're not, we don't like them. We reject them. We uh, don't connect to them. They hurt us. Um, we're not impressed with them. Underlying much of a, um, a, a being not careful with words is a personal judgment, vendetta against someone else. And, and he says, says the Chavetz Chaim, whatever's happened in your life and whatever your thoughts and feelings, if you trust in Hashem and you realize everyone's a Tzalem Elohim, everyone's a creature of Hashem, and you realize that even whatever happened to you came to you because it was right for you. That doesn't mean you don't hold the other person accountable for what they did. Right? Somebody slanders or gossips and they've caused damages, you're entitled to go after them for their damages. You can hold them accountable. But to speak Lashon Hara, to take revenge, to be angry, that denies Hashem's role in what just happened. It means to say, somebody embarrasses you. Somebody did something to hurt you. Right? I, I, I give this example when I talk about this, that many years ago, many years ago, everything's relative, but many years ago, Somebody, to this day, I don't know who it is, an anonymous person, sent a letter around to much of the community about me. Not about me negatively, about my salary, right? So my first reaction was, I'm going to find out who that person is. I'm going to hire a private detective. We're going to work. We're going to figure out who this is. I'm going to check the type print, the font, the postage. We're going to track which mailbox they put it in. We're going to find this person and break their legs, you know, whatever. We're going to find this person. And it, right around then was when I was really learning about Amuna and Bitachon. And I came across this incredible, incredible statement of, uh, of the Sefer HaChinuch. That if you really have a moon and bitachon, if you really believe in Hashem, then you'll never want to take revenge. Because at the root of taking revenge is the, is the notion that I didn't deserve this. This wasn't coming to me. This is not in my best interest. Somebody else has harmed me. I'm going to take them out. The person who has a moon and bitachon says to themselves, you know what? Whoever did that's not very nice. And whoever did that, if I do discover who it is, there should be consequences. The president of the shul should call them in, there should be consequences. But if I'm focused on that person, I'm losing the connection. I'm losing the, what I needed to learn, which is that if this wasn't somehow right to happen to me, Hashem wouldn't have let it happen. It would have been lost in the mail, the person would have found the postage stamps, then it would have gone to the trouble. There would have been a million ways that that never would have happened. If it wasn't meant to happen, Hashem would have prevented it from happening. If it happened... It was meant to be. And if it was meant to be, it's because somehow I needed to go through that. It's a whole paradigm shift of how you live life. And your interpersonal relationships, therefore, are unbelievably influenced by your relationship with Hashem. In other words, before learning this Shemir Salashim, before learning that insight about the prohibition of nekama, of revenge, I would have said, they're two separate things. I work on my relationship with God and I work on my interpersonal relationships and stop confusing the two. God, stay out of this. This has to do with me and the person who sent the letter. Or person who sent the letter, stay out of this. This has to do with me and God, my davening, my amuna, my staka, and so on. But really, we have to realize that the two are intrinsically connected. That my relationship with people will improve, will be enriched, will be enhanced, based on my connection with Hashem. And, on the flip side, if I'm damaged or hurt by people, I have to realize 
that that too could not have happened if Hashem did not will it. Somehow I needed to endure that. I needed to go through that. I've learned from it. Do I hold the other person accountable? Absolutely, I should hold the other person accountable. Right? I don't say, somebody stole my car, I wake up in the morning, come to the driveway, my car is not there. I don't say, well, clearly Hashem wanted me to not have a car. I accepted Hashem, whoever it is, enjoy the car. <laughs> clearly Hashem didn't want me to have a car. That'd be absurd. I call the police, and I try to find whoever stole my car. But I also say to myself, why did this happen? If Hashem wanted to make the... Bless you. If Hashem wanted to make the thief go to the next house, he would have gone to the next house. Why did he come to my house? Why did he take my car? So the two are not mutually exclusive. I'm able to hold the perpetrator accountable and at the same time realize that what happened to me didn't happen only because a person willed it. It happened with the permission, with the license of the Rebono Shalom of the Almighty Himself. So bitachon, my level of faith in Hashem plays an enormous role. And by the way, how important is that? We all know people who are consumed by revenge. Somebody hurt them in life. Could be somebody hurt them in a huge way, like they were a partner in business and they stole huge money. It could be someone took their makam kavu and shul le Shabbos. I sit in that chair, I got there, someone was in my chair, I got to get revenge, it's unforgivable. Whatever the magnitude of the hurt, what happens when we be consumed by revenge? Who loses out? Not the person who we're trying to get, we lose out. It's a burden we carry. It weighs us down. It makes us live with this negative, toxic, fabicinal life. If we want to live with serenity and tranquility and happiness and a joy in life, a menuchas, a nefesh, a simchas, a chayim, then it comes from bitachon. Say, look, I got to go to court. Someone stole my car. I'm holding them accountable. That doesn't take away from my joy because whatever reason, Hashem made me go through this. I had to go to court. I had to lose my car. There was something for me to learn, some way for me to grow. So this, the answer to simcha sachayim, to menucha sanefesh, to joy in life and to serenity, is bitachon. And that's what the Chavetz Chaim is getting at here, yeah. But don't you think some of this has to do with the psychology, like the makeup of a person? You know what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. We all are predisposed in different ways. Right. I would say even more than the makeup of a person, it has to do with the family they were raised in. If every night at the dinner table and every Shabbos at the Shabbos table they heard their parents talking about this neighbor and that person in shul and the business partner and the other guy and the and how terrible and mean and this one is stingy and this one is general. We gave them that gift for the bar mitzvah, right? People are, simchas is like a great platform for vengeance, right? Now I gave them a huge gift and they gave my kid this nothing. I can't wait till the next simcha. I'm going to give them less than nothing, you know? That, when one is consumed with that, to hold that spreadsheet in your head, you know? They, I always give this extreme example, right? We invited them over and I served meat. They had us over, they served chicken. Uh, that's ridiculous, I gotta get revenge. We had them, they never had us. I've had them 17 times, they're only up to 14 times. We're not having them again till they have us. It's like, who, the one who suffers the most living that life of, of spreadsheets and accountability and tit for tat and vengeance is you, you suffer. Who wants to live life that way? Listen, if the person's not a real friend, so you know the consequences, understand that the friendship is shallow and superficial, and move on. But when you're consumed with revenge, and so, you know, I placed them in the front, and they placed me near the orchestra. Like, who, who can afford the, how much, we only have limited RAM in our head. You only have limited memory in your head. How much of it you want to keep, you know, want to load up on these, on these other things? So the core to interpersonal relationships and to serenity, happiness, and life is to, is to work on, work on bitachon. I, I have a question. Yes. Say, I'm just giving an example. Say you know that uh, 
beforehand say, Ber I'm going to use Bernie Madoff, okay? Yeah. And you have a friend that's going to invest with him. Right. Are you allowed to call your friend? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. There's details we're not going to get into about Shemir Salashim, but when, when the it's, Lashon Hara is Lituelis. Suppose somebody calls me about a Shidduch and says, I, my daughter's being set up with this boy, anything you can tell me. Mm -hmm. And I know this boy mm -hmm. would be horrific for the girl. Mm -hmm. Not only can I say, I must say something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the whole book of Shemir Salashon, Chavetz Chaim, is a thick book regulating speech. When is it allowed? Somebody says, oh, I'm, I'm taking on a new business partner. I'm investing a million dollars with this guy. I think it's mm -hmm. going to be great. Mm -hmm. I know that this person has frauded 10 people. Mm -hmm. I have to say something. Mm -hmm. So there, of course, are, are situations. Let's, let's keep going, because he okay. says a great example. The Gemara Menacho says, So a person who hangs everything in their life on the hook of Shamayim, of Hashem. You interpret everything going on in your life through Hashem. So what happened? You were in the middle of working on your computer and the internet went down and you're ready to kill Comcast because they are the worst company on earth with the worst customer service that ever happened. And you're freaking out because you needed to order that thing. You're in the middle of booking your airline ticket. You're in the middle of working on your weekly message and the internet went down. So you can either be consumed with Comcast or you can say... If Hashem didn't want the internet to go down at this moment, it wouldn't have gone down. Clearly, you take that deep breath, you tap into your reservoir of emunah and bitachon, and you can get on with life. Because being anxious and hating Comcast will not make the internet come back faster. There's very little you can do to make Comcast get the internet to come back faster. But one thing I know for sure is that being consumed with rage and anger and frustration and revenge is not going to make the internet come back faster. So take a deep breath, emunah. So that's what he's quoting the Gemara Menachos. That kol atola b'tchona b'gash Just put your trust in Hashem for everything. Put your trust in Hashem when the internet's going to come back. Put your trust in Hashem about everything and your life will be much more serene. She'yir ha'shalo yuchol esapek ba'isakas m'ladar b'dvarm shlo kahogin al-pidin. Because when you get angry, you end up saying the wrong things. You end up saying self-destructive things. Akeinu ma'avir amidos v'botech b'ashem v'bavakesh b'menu. If you want Hashem to have your back and to be responsive, so if you're consumed with Comcast, Hashem says, okay, you're busy fighting with Comcast, I'm staying out of it. But if you say to Hashem, yeah, Comcast is to blame and they're accountable, and if I could switch to AT&T, I would, but meanwhile, Hashem, could you help the internet come back on? I need it, I'm in the middle of something. Hashem says, oh, you want my help? You want my involvement? Here I am. I'm happy to get involved. Because Baruch's involvement is proportional to whether we include him or whether we shut him out. Whether we see everything going on in our lives through the filter of Hashem or whether we say, oh, Hashem, he's in shul. That's when I dab him. Hashem is a brach I make before. Hashem is when I take challah from the challah. But like Comcast, that, the internet, what does that do with Hashem? That's Comcast. So all that depends on us. Just listen to the example he gives. One more second. Lama what's this similar to? Ish shebanav mesubin al-shulchano. You're having dinner with your children. So you give a portion of dinner to each child. Right? So I have meetings in Hollywood all the time, and at times, though it's foolish, I come back with a dozen donuts and the kosher Dunkin' Donuts in Hollywood. So I come back and I give a donut to each child. And what happens? One, never in our house, but the neighbor's house, so not across the street. So one child, one child grabs the donut of the other child, a second child. So if the child whose donut was stolen from them comes to the parent and says, Avi, Dad, 
I asked my sibling to give me back my donut. But they won't give it back. Now, I know you don't want me to smack my sister. I know you don't want me to call her a name, hit her, or start a fight. So I'm coming to you. An injustice has occurred. A horrific crime has happened. My donut was taken. I'm tempted to, to take revenge or deal with it myself. But I know that won't make you happy, Mom. I know you'd be upset. So I'm coming to you, calmly. And I'm saying, intervene. Get my donut back. <laughs> what does the parent say when that happens? Say, hold on, I'm on the phone with Comcast. Now, what does the parent... What does the parent... What does the parent say to the kid? <laughs> you kiss that child on the kepi. And you say, you know what? You get two donuts from the donuts that are left. And you say, You have found such favor in my eye by the way you handled it that I'm going to give you a double portion. You're right. Your sibling is wrong. I've got to put them in time out. I've got to take away the cell phone. I've got to punish them. They were wrong. I'm so proud of you that you came to me instead of fighting with them. I'm going to give you a double portion. Your foolish sibling can keep your portion. So the next time I bring back donuts, you're getting two and they're not getting any. They just got an advance on the donut. The next time I bring back a dozen donuts, you get two, they don't get any. But if the aggrieved victim child doesn't do this, they go find a baseball bat in the house and smack their sibling. And with the parent right there, instead of involving the parent, they just beat up their sibling. Until the child spits the donut out from their mouth. So, right, as parents, we've all been there. Even though the truth is with the aggrieved child, who do you throw in time out? Not the one who took the donut. What do you, you can't take a bait. You, you were the victim until you just got the baseball bat. You just became the perpetrator. And what does the parent now do? He throws them both in time out. says, I'm putting you both up for adoption. I'm done with you. I can't take this. You should have come to me and I would have taken care of you. But you didn't. You tried to handle it on your own. I'm done with both of you. Says the Chavetz Chaim, What we expect and demand from our children is exactly what God wants from us. Hashem is the one who ultimately gives us our livelihood, our sustenance, our health, our children, our nachas, our shalom bayis. We say in Ashrei, Hashem is no sin lechem lechol basar, who avien shal Yisrael. He's our father. Heim banav, we're his children, as it says, banim atem. Rotze b'shlomam ve'ena rotze b'machlo kusam. Kosh Baruch just wants us to get along. Stop fighting with each other. Ukamot de'isa b'tanat be'elio rabba, kach amal ha'makosh Baruch Hu Yisrael, b'nai ahuvai, my beloved children, klum chasarti davar she'avakesh mikem. Have I failed you in some way? I'm asking you, there's one thing I'm asking you. Children, I pay your cell phone bill. I give you a roof over your head. I send you to summer camp. I've taken you on Israel trips. I take you shopping in the mall. All I'm asking is just get along with each other. That's all I'm asking you. Right? It's an exact, everything we ask from 
Mirza Hashem, we should have children and have healthy children to give us nachas. What we ask from our children is all that Akash Baruch Hu asks exactly from us. When one person is busy fighting, you took my business, you infringed on my customer, you took my client, unhealthy competition, I'm going to bad mouth you. So what happens? You think somebody aggrieved you, somebody stole from you, somebody competed in an unfair way with you, somebody stole your customers or your clients, somebody... You could either go after them or you could come to the father and say, my sibling took my donut. I could get a baseball bat and kill him, but I'm coming to you. I'm asking you to make up for that portion. So Kosh Baruch doesn't just make up for the portion. You want to give Hashem nachas? You want to find chen in Hashem's eyes? Just like we as parents give a, kip, give a kiss on the kepi of that child who came to us in a calm voice instead of escalating a fight. So we, instead of escalating fights, even when they're just fights, even when they're just fights, but instead of escalating a fight, we turn to the Rebbe Shalom and we say, Abba, Tati, Dad, I've come to you. Intervene. Then he's so, it's so beloved to Hashem, that attitude, the calm on our part, that he not only makes up what was taken, but he gives above. Avur b'tchono b'ashem, yitain l'zeh apayim. But if you don't do this, you fight. Even if you're right, even if you do that, it's so disappointing to Hashem. In other words, we all have the capacity to be mavir alhamidos. We all have the capacity that even when we're right, to be forgiving and flexible. Are we entitled to hold the other person accountable? Absolutely. But even then, sometimes, just turn the other way. It's not the Christian view of turn the other cheek. But it means, find the inner strength to be maver alhamidos. Just let it go. Let it go. Because when you carry it with you, it gets heavier and heavier. And a bigger and a bigger burden. And more and more consuming of your life. And clouds more and more of your vision and your judgment. Find that capacity to be maver alhamidos. There's an amazing story with Yechav's grandfather, which I'm not going to tell now. I've told it on Yom Kippur, and Rabbi Kron's been telling it since then. And uh, there's actually a videographer coming to do a professional video about this story. But we have a, a, a unfathomable, we have it. That's what her Zaidi teaches all of us. We have this unfathomable capacity for forgiveness if we only tap into it. If we're mavir alamidos. You want to give Hashem the greatest nachas? If you have bitachon and Hashem, right? Sometimes it happens, a child comes to you and says, you know, my sister did this and this, but instead of fighting with them, I let it go. Oh, do you want to give a hug to that kid? Oh, do you want to give a reward to that kid? If you have bitachon with the father, you want to come to the father and say, boy, did somebody hurt me, but I want you to know, Dad, I let it go. I know that would make you happy. I know that's what you would want for us to be able to get along. The last paragraph. You will see the kindness and goodness of Hashem. Right? That child who was entitled to fight with the sibling, but instead of fighting, came to the parent. You don't think the rest of that night and the rest of that day, the rest of that week, that child's going to feel the love and the affection of the parent. They're going to feel it. It'll be palpable, the approval and the love and the affection of the parent who so appreciates that the child let it go. And we too will feel that affection and that love and that presence of Hashem in our lives if we just let it go. As the Pasuk says, Tamu ra'u kitov Hashem. 
Ashrei HaGever Yechsebo. This was my Bubby's favorite pasuk. She, when she was sick and towards the end of her life passing away, she would often recite this, Tamur'u. You'd ask her how she's doing. She'd say, Tamur, taste and you will see Kitov Hashem, how good Hashem is. Ashrei HaGever Yechsebo. Fortunate is the person who puts their faith in, who puts their faith in Him. Taste and you will see. We went to the Coke factory in Atlanta a couple summers ago. As always, I reserve the right to repeat whatever I'm saying in this group in the drush at some point. We went to the Coke factory. At the end of the Coke factory, they do this horrifically abusive thing to parents. They give every child a cup, and they put the children in this enormous room that has a hundred and whatever flavors of Coke with fountains, and they say, drink up whatever you want. Drink whatever you like, whatever you want. Your kid doesn't sleep for three months after that. It's like... It's a torture. It's an absolute torture technique. But anyway, at the Coke factory, we were touring the Coke factory, and I'm not going to bore you with the origins of Coke, which I found fascinating. Coke began as a syrup that you had to mix your own water. It didn't begin as a soda, and it was sold at pharmacies. There was a dispenser of the syrup at pharmacies. You'd buy it. As you can imagine, it didn't sell much. So somebody had this Einfall. Someone had this great idea. You know what? Let's give out free samples. If we give out free samples, they'll get hooked, and they'll realize it's delicious. They'll want more. That's what made me, when I remember when we did the, the Coke tour, I thought it was, Tamu Ru'uki Tov Hashem. Take a free sample. Tamu. Taste. Have a taste. Have a sample of what it feels like with Hashem, and you'll want more. Tamu Ru'u. Taste and you will see Kitov Hashem. That really Hashem is good. And that therefore, Ashri HaGever Yechesebo. Fortunate, blessed, lucky is the one who puts their fate in Him. You could look at the Coke all day long, but until you taste it, you don't know what it is. Until you taste it, you don't know what it is. You're cooking, you did the recipe, you followed the instructions, but you know, you need to touch it to your tongue, you need to taste it to make sure it's right. Until you taste it, you don't really know. You want to know what it's like to live with Hashem? You got to taste it. You gotta taste it. You can't be looking as an outsider. You gotta put it in your mouth. You gotta taste. You can't really appreciate it until you taste. You gotta be an insider to be tachon to understand. As an outsider, you can be cynical and skeptical, but to be an insider to be tachon, you'll really take a taste and you'll really appreciate Hashem. So that's what I wanted to study with you today. Is a very counterintuitive. The Chavetz Chaim says you want to have better interpersonal relationships. You want to get along better. You want to let go of revenge. You want to stop calculating the spreadsheets with people. It's all about bitachon. Very counterintuitive to link the two, but the Chavetz Chaim says, work on your bitachon, you'll see your interpersonal relationships be enriched as well. Denise. Do you want to do a story about Lagos? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to come to that one second. Thank so, you. There's a big difference between accepting that everything is from Hashem and accepting what Hashem is doing. Ooh. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because the way this sounds, it sounds like we, we accept everything, we, all, we know everything is from Hashem, but that we accept it without... Without having a conversation, we're, we're just, I'm not sure I'm articulating. No, I understand exactly what you're saying. You know what I, mean? I understand exactly what you're saying. Like, Notice, well, you can accept, I can accept it's from Hashem, but not be happy with the decision. Right. Correct. So what, what's my recourse? Correct. So let, let's come back to that another time because it's deserving of a fuller treatment. But what I will say just for the, for the purpose of this discussion, we discussed this a little bit in the past, is Krish Boko doesn't expect you to take it lying down. We have precedent. When Hashem says, I'm destroying stone, He says to Avram, how could I hide this from you? You're my man. I want to let you know, destroying that city over there. Avram doesn't say, okay, listen, you're the infinite one. What do I know? Okay. Avram says, what are you talking about, Hashem? I'm protesting. No way. There's got to be 50 tzaddikim there. No way. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hashem, show me your face. 
He doesn't say, look, Hashem, you run the world, I'm the closest human being, I'm the closest any human being has or will ever be to you, and therefore I'm an Ebed Hashem, whatever you say. Moshe doesn't say that. He says, I want to understand your ways. Why did that baby just die? Why is that person suffering? Why is that hurt going on? I don't know, why is that earthquake, the hurricane, the tsunami? Show me your ways. Moshe protests. We have a rich tradition of protest. And the Rambam writes this. When when somebody is struggling, right? I've said this before, when we have a child in the community who's with illness, I always introduce the Tehillim to say, Hashem, we've gathered to protest what you're doing. We accept it, and we will accept whatever the outcome. But we are protesting. Because part of why Hashem sometimes does what He does is to elicit our protest, is to create that connection, is to do a gut check. Are we okay? Do we accept? Or are we protesting because we're going to fight for justice and we're going to step up and do our part? So recognizing it's from Hashem doesn't mean blindly accepting it. We are allowed to be disappointed, hurt, angry. I even think, and we've talked about this, you know, the Holocaust survivor who spends the rest of their life angry at Hashem. That's an expression of emuna. You're only angry at someone who you think exists. You're not angry at an imaginary thing. You're only angry at someone who you expected more from. You're not angry at someone that you had no expectation of. So there isn't... In some ways, there is a profound emunah in protest. When you protest, what you're saying is, you know, let's say you didn't believe in Hashem, and you thought that cancer is a function of randomness, chance, gene mutation, it's, uh, it's, uh, the, it's the environment. What does Hashem have to do with it? So you're not going to protest to Hashem because there are statistics and somebody is a statistical uh, recipient of cancer. You're not going to protest to Hashem. What are you doing when you're protesting to Hashem? What you're implicitly saying when you protest to Hashem is... You're in control. You're in charge. You could change this. What are you doing? Right? You don't protest to somebody who's not in charge. You protest to the person who can change the outcome. So implicit in the protest to Hashem is a profound statement of emuna that I believe you can change the outcome. So protesting Hashem is not antithetical to emuna. It is an expression of emuna. Understanding it comes from Hashem doesn't mean, okay... That's Scientology. We don't believe in Scientology. We believe you go to the doctor and we believe you, you know, a person gets an illness. Your kid gets stripped. You don't say no antibiotic. We're not going to the doctor. That's what Scientologists say. This is what God wants. This is what God wants. If he wants to heal you, he'll heal you. Otherwise, we're not doing it. That's what Scientology believes. We believe you go to the doctor. You do your Ashtadlis. And one of the ways that we do our Ashtadlis is to protest Hashem. So there's nothing wrong. One should not feel guilty being angry. One should not feel guilty protesting. In many ways, it is a profound expression of emuna. I want to just end with a Lagba Omer thought. I don't know if this overlaps with what Yechevet said last night, but it might. Lagba Omer. Why do we observe Lagba Omer? There's many reasons given. Some are popular, some are popular and wrong. For example, some say it's Rav Shimon Bar Yochai's site. It's not his site. One thing we know is it's not his site. It's brought down as well. It is brought down and they're wrong. But it's a total. So far there's a mistake in an addition like that identifies that as the day of his death. But it is the date that he left the cave after he was there hiding from the Romans, learning with his son. A lot to do with Rav Shimon Bar Yechai. Pay attention on Shavuos. The theme of our whole Shavuos is Kabbalah. We have 13 or 14 classes on all different aspects of Kabbalah. Wow. And one of them, I think, is, did Rav Shimon Bar Yechai really write the Zohar? Which you might be very surprised by the answer. But um, that's on Shavuos. So one is Rav Shimon Bar Yechai. Um, it's not his Yerzai. But he did leave the cave, and there are mystical connections between Rav Shimon Bar Yechai and uh, the Rashbi and Lagba Omer. It is someone else's Yeretzai tonight and tomorrow, and that is the Ramah, Rav Moshe Um 
It is the day that the man began to fall. It is a date that uh, our rebellion against the Romans. There are... Oh, so the most famous reason is, this is well brought in Shulchan Aruch, is that the students of Rabbi Kiva stopped dying. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question. Anyone know why they stopped dying? Because they stopped quarreling. Nope. Russian horror. Nope. Russian horror. They stopped dying because they were all dead. Yes, but I thought. There was no one left to die. There was no one left They didn't left stop dying die. because God's great mercy came and therefore the rest of them survived. They stopped dying because there was no one left to die. Mm. Is it not a bizarre observance to create? Tonight we're going to have a bonfire with music and a party and a celebration. Meron and Israel is going to be incredible, going to be crazy, big party. Who makes a party because there was no one left to die so the death stopped? Mm. That's absurd. That's absurd. So what we were all taught as kids is that Lag Balmer corresponds with the fact that Bikiva students stopped dying. It's absurd. First of all, it would be absurd even if there were more students. Because, okay, the plague ended. They were liberated from the concentration camps. Let's make a party. You don't make a party. It's a very somber reality. You're grateful that the time came. You don't start playing music and make a party. So it's bizarre. So the Chida and others explain that Lagba Omer is not about the students stopping to die. Lagba Omer is all about what Rabbi Akiva did next. Gemara tells us that Rabbi Akiva, just picture Rabbi Akiva for a moment. Rabbi Akiva, who only first started learning at 40 years old, his incredible wife, Rachel, we actually visited her grave in Israel a couple summers ago, but his incredible wife encouraged him, even though it meant forfeiting the great inheritance of her gazillionaire father. But Rabbi Akiva started learning at 40. At 40. And he became a big Tamachacham, and he amassed an incredible amount of students, 24,000 students. And you know what happened to those students? He had to go to 24,000 funerals. He had to deliver 24,000 eulogies. He paid 24,000 shiva calls. That's insane. If that happened to me, you know what I would do? I'd hang him up and I'd say, I'm going to go learn in the corner by myself. I'm done. I'm done teaching. I'm done spreading the word. I'm done. I'm just, this was not meant to be. I might be done with Torah altogether, but if I'm still into Torah, I'm going to go back to the corner and learn by myself. I'm done. That's not what Rabbi Kiva did. He came back from the last shiva call of the last student he had. And you know what the next thing he did is? He found five more students, some say seven. He found five more students, what the Gemara identifies as Rabbi Senu Shebedarom, the rabbis of the South. And he sat down and he started all over again. And he started teaching these five students. And these five students are the ambassadors. It's only through them that we have the transmission of Torah. We would not have Torah Shabbat we wouldn't have the Gemara. We wouldn't have Judaism the way we know it if not for Rabbi Akiva's resiliency and tenacity to start again with these new students and through them. Rav Asher Weiss points out that if you notice, if you go through Shas, you'll see that these five students, so many of their statements have to do with the way we treat one another and the respect we have for one another. Mm-hmm. Clearly what Rabbi Akiva, not his failure, but what had failed to be communicated to the first group of students clearly was understood by the second group. And five students succeeded in doing what 24,000 didn't. And that is continuity in the transmission of, of Torah. It's not a coincidence that it's Rabbi Akiva who teaches, because he saw that when you have the rest of the Torah, but not you have to learn Kamocha, you attend 24,000 funerals. Kamocha is the Klal Gadol. It is the core principle of all Torah that everything's built up. But what I want to bring out from this for our Amuna talk is that what Amuna that Rabbi Akiva had 
to go to 24,000 funerals and deliver 24,000 eulogies and pay 24,000 shiva calls and have the faith and have the amuna to start again, that can only happen when you have unbelievable amuna, that there's a plan, that there's a reason, and, and, uh, and that you have a purpose and that you have a calling and that you need to start again. So Lag Ba'omer is a day of a lot of things. I wrote an article on Aish once about Lag Ba'omer being a day of gratitude. I'm going to put it on the WhatsApp group later. At Lag Ba'omer, on the one hand, is a day of gratitude, but on the other hand, Lag Ba'omer is a day of unbelievable emuna. That even when something failed, even when it didn't go your way, even when it didn't go as planned, the ability to start again, to start anew, to have a fresh start, to have emuna, that you can yet achieve what you had dreamt of doing, Rabbi Akiva did it, and we can too. But Amuna is pervasive in the, other, in the whole theme of Lag Omer because Vashon Barachai had to have Amuna in the cave. Right. That Hashem would provide him what he needed. He, was, he had nothing. And the Ochli Haman has to wait every day for the months to come. They have to have Amuna that Hashem would provide for that. That's, so. why, that's why you're the Rebbe. <laughs> that, that theme is really Absolutely. pervasive in everything. Exactly, right. In other words, if you want to look what's the common theme of all of these things, it's the notion of, of Amuna. Beautiful. <laughs> Yashikoach. Thank you. Thank you.